we have definitely progressed with our attitudes towards therapy and mental illness, but we still have a long way to go. The stigma towards mental health exists to this day, and we want to explore how the stigma affects every single one of us to some degree. We're unpacking mental health within the context of the Muslim experience, emerging platforms for therapy, and new information that interacts with existing knowledge. Salam, listeners. I'm Ninas. I'm Amina. This is Cafe Tenweed. Grab a cup of coffee. At the beginning of every recording, we start with a dua to set the intention that we're here to build knowledge and gain perspective. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Rabbi shrah li sadri wa yassir li amri wa hlul aqtatan min lisani yafqahu qawli. Today, we've invited a panel of mental health experts coming from diverse areas within the industry. Our first guest is Dania Sve'i, an art therapy and counseling recent graduate from the School of Art Institute of Chicago. Her art therapy fieldwork ranges from facilitating open studio spaces for students at the University of Chicago, as well as community art studios in public spheres and hospital settings. She recently showcased her work, Too Fragile, Too Soft, which explores what it means to walk on eggshells and the hidden language embedded within covert abusive behavior. Aside from completing her externship working with students at the University of Chicago, she currently runs open studios online for Al Bustan Seeds of Culture, an Arab nonprofit organization that offers artistic and educational programming. You can visit Danya on Instagram at Dendushe. Our next guest, Dr. Ali Anwar, is a psychiatrist based in Minneapolis. He received his medical degree from the Chicago College of Osteopathic Medicine at Midwestern University in 2013 and completed both his residency training in psychiatry and fellowship training in child and adolescent psychiatry at Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis, Missouri. He's worked in various treatment settings and seen people of all different ages from different backgrounds and socioeconomic statuses. Currently, he's employed through Prairie Care Medical Group. We also have Leila Khair. She has a PhD in social work and is a licensed clinical social worker. She has been working in schools since 2012 and is passionate about working with children and youth. Leila's current focus is with Muslim and Arab American youth, and her research interests include exploring how the intersectionality of race, ethnicity, culture, religion, and values influence identity development and negotiation. Great. So you guys have some really cool stuff in your background. We're kind of excited to like go over it. Um, One of the first things we kind of wanted to start the discussion off with was kind of like how long each of you have been practicing. I know we kind of like briefly touched on that, just but just understanding kind of like the process of getting to where you've gotten to today. And then um, kind of segueing into kind of what uh, patient population you serve. So I, I completed medical school in 2013. So technically, I've been starting to practice psychiatry, just uh, at least counting training um, for the last seven years. Completed training in 2018. So it'll be about two years this summer. Um, Last year, I was kind of working in various treatment settings, but currently, um, I see only children and adolescents, and I see them in the acute inpatient setting. So these are children and adolescents who are going through acute mental health crises, um, and they're usually in the hospital for a short stay. So that's my current uh, practice setting. And Layla, what about you? Um, I received my bachelor's in 20, uh, 2011 and I, my master's in social work in 2012. So I did some internships like in that time frame, And then um, where I was, I did some work at a domestic violence shelter for a year or two. And I also did an internship at Chicago Public Schools. Um, and then since 2012, I've been at Uxa School, which is an all-girls private Islamic school in Bridgeview, Illinois, so south suburbs of, of Illinois. Um, and um, I work with 
primarily um, Arab and Muslim youth, K through fifth grade as boys and girls, but sixth through 12th grade as all girls. So um, I've kind of had a the privilege of working with, you know, primarily um, young girls. And you just defended your PhD, right? Oh, um, cool. Thank you. Um, and so when I was uh, working um, at this in this population with very like kind of like specific population of interest, I felt like I was privy to their experiences, and I wanted to kind of see what um, there wasn't a lot of research out. There's still not a lot of research. Um, for that population. Um, and I really felt like there was a, a gap there and wanted to find a way to contribute and also see what was out there. And so for me, um, I just wanted to clarify what steps a person needs to take to become an art therapist, because it's not a really known field. It actually requires um, a master's degree. So you cannot practice without getting a master's degree and then getting licensed in the state started with my interest in social design and then it moved on to me wanting to do uh, work that involved more interaction with people and just like building relationships. So that kind of got me studying psychology for a bit and then deciding to apply to grad school. Oh, very cool. It's a three-year program and I'm graduating this May and I'm currently working on my thesis um, surrounding the topic um, of the wounded healer. In a sense, it's a guide for students who are being trained while experiencing traumatic life experiences. So it's kind of um, about uh, focusing on post-traumatic growth instead of symptom reduction only. So it's like a little a different approach to uh, helping students uh, realize that getting therapy while getting trained is actually very important. Um, and so the populations I've worked with since I started school, um, I did uh, an open studio in Harold Washington Library with, um, with an organization called Artworks. It basically runs an open studio once a week open to anyone in the public and it provides materials and access to resources. And the second site I've worked at was actually Loyola University Hospital uh, in Maywood and I actually uh, was the first time I worked with, oncolo with oncology patients. It was both inpatient and outpatient. And the last site, the third one that I'm at right now, is uh, at University of Chicago, um, working with all students, like undergrad, grad, PhD students. Um, and it's actually a pioneering site. Like I, they did not like have a previous uh, art therapist or even intern. So it's kind of like developing a program there from scratch. Uh, I run an open studio virtually now once a week and that's about it um i wanted to ask you what would you say to um like a muslim family about art therapy like like how would you sort of um I, it might be some of the things you've talked about already how do you um, describe it in, if, like, if they're considering it for their kids for their kids for themselves for somebody they know um i mean if they cared more about science i would mention evidence-based studies that say like 45 minutes of art making actually reduce your cortisol levels and like you know you would read the room essentially normally i would say um i would explain to them how not expression is not always verbal and specifically with adolescents and children they often like find it easier to process things through make through creative like endeavors or through self-expression through art and so I would I was use that as a starting point to even explain what I do to kind of like validate that, you know, you need to understand that not everything is like verbally communicated.
And if your children are not opening up to you verbally, then maybe they need to try something different. Or like maybe if talk therapy is not working for them, that's a sign that you need to try another kind of therapy. On that subject, Anya, like what is a candidate for an option like art therapy? Like what is, what are like the steps that you have to kind of like go through to understand like this is something, this is someone who would like benefit? Oh, in terms of... um what population benefits more or like would want to do art therapy yeah is it like is everyone a candidate for art therapy yeah so this is the thing there's no requirement in terms of artistic skills for any person to like actually do art therapy um we work with a really wide range of demographic um so there is pretty much no limitation it just depends on the need of the client so like um let's say people who are having trouble with talk therapy or even expressing themselves verbally, uh, we provide sort of an alternative way of expression uh, through all kinds of creative mediums. So it's not just like traditional fine arts. We actually offer uh, pretty much a limitless amount of creative projects that kind of allow the person to express themselves non-verbally. Um, specifically, like not just children, a lot of uh, populations struggle with um, making sense of trauma, which is a normal reaction. Yeah, whatever I've seen with art therapy has been in the context of oncology. That's really interesting to hear the way that it plays a role in um, in other patients' lives as well. Yeah, so it's, it's mainly uh, publicized in oncology because they're usually the most funded and because there's usually more studies done in, in oncology. Like, if you look at art therapy studies, a lot of them regarding post-traumatic growth, which I'm working on, are actually uh, based on oncology settings. So I think it's because there's more funding. Um. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I'm curious to know, Leda um, and Ali, like, did you, have you guys ever kind of like made that proactive recommendation for art therapy? I can answer that, actually. So we... They, we do have an art therapist that we work with in the inpatient psychiatric unit. Um, and it's something that I've seen both in the adult uh, population as well as the children and adolescents. And it's actually pretty beneficial, uh, at least from anecdotally in my experience. Um, oftentimes, that's one of the groups that uh, group therapy settings that kids find the most helpful um, and beneficial in our seven to 10 days day. Um, and I, you know, I don't know, um, and Danya can probably speak more on this on the individual setting. I've never had any experience with patients who've done art therapy individually. Um, it's mostly been in the group setting and had mostly positive results on it um, and done it a little bit differently to just your traditional art therapy groups, but also using process group with a combination of art therapy. And oftentimes, um, especially in a population where I've seen where a lot of these kids who have like attempted suicide or something have had trauma histories themselves. So it is an alternative way to express themselves. Um, and in my experience, uh, just as an observer or you know, in collaboration with working in art therapist, I've had a lot of positive experiences. I know patients tell me that they've benefited a lot from it, at least in the short term. Mm-hmm. I've never thought of art therapy in the inpatient setting. That's so interesting. Yeah. Compared to some, like, I, I don't know, in schools, at least my experience in schools has been that there aren't a lot of, there. There, it's very rare that you'll have an art therapist in a school. Usually if we have art therapists, um, if schools have art therapists, it would be like through like a community organization or someone coming in from outside. My my role as the school social worker is very different than my like my, how my role would be if I was in a public school instead of a private school. Um, in public school, a lot of it is just mandated by whatever is mandated by the state. They have to meet IEP minutes, so let's um, individualize education plans. They mostly focus on working with students who have. 
um, you know, special needs or students um, who have like social work minutes, which means that like they're, they're required by the state to be met with a social worker essentially. And it's very rare that social workers have time to meet with like the general population of, of students. Um, at my school, because um, pub private schools don't often have a high population of students with special needs. So in my school experience, I actually, you know, I've, I've never had, I've, it would have been awesome actually to have um, art therapists come in and work with some of my students or work in collaboration or, you know, even in groups. Um, but the one, my one experience with uh, art therapy would be my students who have been in inpatient settings and they come back and they're like working on something that they started. So I think it's interesting, you know, with the like, you know, your experience was, um, Ali, uh, yours was with inpatient, and then you yeah. worked with um, people in inpatient. And my only experience, I think, with some of my students who have experienced, who've like got to, you know, do art therapy, those students who are who are there. But I do think that there are a lot of students at my school that would benefit from um, art therapy. I know Leila works almost exclusively with the Muslim and Arab population, but this is a question for all of you. In whatever capacity you've seen them. Are there any issues that primarily affect the Muslim community or that are unique to the Muslim community uh, with respect to mental illness? Being a person of color, like you're you're sought after like in a different way. I, th I believe like just being a person, a therapist of color, students usually like open up faster and just like they reach out and they connect more. Um, as I reflect on it, I'm thinking to myself, OK, so I know for a fact that there's a stigma in our community and um, mm -hmm. I know that many people don't reach out mm -hmm. when they need help. So now what I'm hearing is if they have someone to connect with that looks like them, that speaks the same language as them, or that understands their faith background, they're much more likely to open up and to consider asking for help. Yeah, absolutely. And this applies to people who are not Muslim or Arab too. If you show cultural humility, if you show them, uh, you know, that you are on the same level in some in some way obviously you're always going to have a power differential but just in, in a way like that you are you know allowing them to to see themselves as equals sort of like building a relational kind of therapeutic setting yeah i really i agree i mean i think building rapport and having that like i mean if it's like the first thing we learn in therapy school any kind of like i think social workers other therapists all learn the thing first thing is that 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 client like uh, therapist relationship is one of the major factors if not the like number one factor in like outcomes for for clients so if you're able to build that rapport then you're able to connect with them and having that shared identity really does make a huge difference in my role at the school and it also was something that came up a lot in the in the research that i did for my dissertation um, almost every participant shared that um, if they would have had a therapist who was Arab or Muslim, it would have made things a million times easier for students or participants who, in my study who attended um, a public high school. They all said that even if they didn't have, you know, a Muslim or Arab therapist, if their counselor or even a teacher or any kind of supportive adult was like a person of color or somebody who understood or was more open, even if they weren't a person of color, but they, they were at least more open, had that cultural humility that Dania said, I'm really you know, happy to hear. It's become more of a common term, but usually um, 
people often say like cultural competency or something else or cultural humility is multiculturalism diversity yeah yeah oh so is cultural competency not pc because that's what i've been using so here's the thing with cultural competency it's kind of all semantics but it's really valid because cultural competency you can never really be competent and any culture, even your own. And I, I learned that first and foremost working at my school where I could easily say that I have the same background, I grew up in the same way, I understand your culture, I understand your religion, I can relate to you, you know? It, it could be very easy for me to, to say something like that, but that, would be, that wouldn't be right of me to, to say that. I could never be competent even in my own culture or religion or, or faith or any kind of background. Um, so I have to approach every single person, every single family, every single interaction with this openness and um, uh, desire to like learn from them. And it's a, there's a process of unlearning, right? There's a pro- we like have all these biases and prejudices and things that kind of naturally come up. And we have to really dive into that process of unlearning some of those some of those things yeah or all of them if we can mm-hmm. um because otherwise then that that power differential becomes way more clear and obvious as soon as you, you you're not willing to relinquish some of those that that power like being able to relinquish that power mm-hmm. by first like recognizing what your power you know biases and judgments and perceptions all those things are and then kind of approaching whoever you're working with um or working alongside um you're working with them to really understand mm-hmm. their experiences without imposing your own experiences upon them yeah so to kind of go back on what Danya and Layla said like I think they kind of hit it spot on I think you know uh like my unique background and just like you guys allows us to build a better rapport with people from different backgrounds whether it's a different faith whether it's an immigrant population whether it's second generation um and you know I think kind of to kind of scale back to Lewis's question about any unique prob- problems or mental illnesses within the Muslim community. I think Muslim Americans, if you look at it, it's kind of hard to generalize given um, different cultural backgrounds. So like when I look back in training, I work with a lot of uh, Bosnian refugee population, people who came in the 90s during the Bosnian War. I've also got experience working with um, Arab Americans or Indo-Pak Americans um, and people like myself who are first generation or second generation. Um, you know, and I think it's hard to kind of pinpoint exactly a general, you know, uh, but I think that Muslim Americans do have unique stresses, right? Uh, uh, but specifically when you actually comment on mental illness itself, uh, one thing I always tell people is, is that Muslim Americans are not exempt or Muslims in general are not exempt from any mental illness whatsoever. I mean, ranging from things like um, post-traumatic stress, um, substance use, mood disorder, anxiety disorder, psychosis, these are problems that run just as much in our communities as they do uh, Mm -hmm. otherwise. I think, so to kind of go back, not necessarily unique mental illnesses, but I think there are unique stressors that uh, Muslims face that can contribute to these mental illnesses. So I was trying to figure out if there was like any pattern I could identify with the Muslim community. Mm -hmm. And I read that we have a higher than average, a higher average incidence of something called adjustment disorder as compared to other populations in the U.S. So that made me curious about if there's any variance in the average distribution of illnesses or, you know, something along those lines. Right. I think the first thing important is to identify what adjustment disorder is, right? And the most important thing about adjustment disorder is it's 
behavioral or psychological consequences or symptoms as a result of some kind of stressor or stressful response. Um, and the difference between adjustment disorder versus something like clinical depression or something is that it's a time frame, and also it should technically kind of resolve with time or on its own. Not always, though. Um, and I think there's multiple factors you can kind of attribute to that. I mean, I have my own personal beliefs as to why I think that is. Um, I think um, there's other things, like obviously Muslim Americans who may face discrimination. Um, immigrant stressors in general that are not necessarily specific to the Muslim population, right? That they, these can span across other immigrants or minorities as well. And I think that's kind of what plays into it. Um, I mean, I'm curious to see what the others on this panel think as well. Yeah, yeah. I think I think that's um, that was right what I was about to say too. The, you know, having those, the anxiety due to anti-Muslim racism or the potential for, you know, it might not be that you're experiencing direct but it could be second, secondary trauma or, or visceral trauma or something where you're experiencing something um, or seeing somebody experience something or you see it on the news, you see it in social media, um, you see it happening, you're learning about it in school, um, at Islamic schools, you're seeing like high, insecur high, high insecurity every time there's like an attack or something that happens in the news. Um, so you're kind of hyper aware of like what could happen to you or your community or even like at the mosque, you know, going and like having that heightened security there. And, and also I think um, the reason maybe that, you know, adjustment disorder is kind of like a general kind of like category if they're not, so if they're not like, if you're like somebody, if you were to go to um, see a therapist and you didn't like fill it, you know, meet one of those boxes like you don't have a mood disorder you don't have depression you don't have general anxiety whatever they're gonna have to pick something you know they have to they have to pick something otherwise they can't get billed so um so they'll have to pick adjustment disorder that's kind of the generalized term for they're going through something they need some help we're gonna walk them through it they're gonna hopefully get over but i think what um adi was saying about how you know it could take longer than a short period of time and that's why it's important to look at what what are those things and why there is you know there is that gap in in research of like what is happening with this community what are the outcomes due to the like anti-racism and like calling it what it is right islamophobia sort of like tiptoes around it it's like anti-muslim racism this is like this is anti-muslim racism it's not just fear of muslims it's 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 more complicated than that right so i think calling things what they are kind of acknowledging where it's coming from and what are all the factors there's like obviously so many so many layers here right but the other things that i was thinking about are like um sort of the intergenerational trauma that we often carry as children of immigrants or coming from different cultural backgrounds or countries yeah. that have had um pre-existing or historical trauma sort of like we i mean i could speak for myself and say like i as a syrian american do carry intergenerational trauma like i am experiencing that in my life just by my existence because that was passed on from like generations and generations nobody's completely immune and like 100 like always healed and has no like psychological problems i feel like that's a really important myth to debunk another cause for um the adjustment disorders i think would be the pressure to assimilate in american culture they're constantly trying to resolve the dissonance that they're feeling within like their reality their culture and faith and like and 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 having that kind of conflict or contrast mm -hmm. in some ways 
in the way that like American culture is telling them that they're like not the same, that they're different. So I think there needs to be like consideration for the intersectional identities of every single Muslim, American Arab or whatever it is, because it's a lot more complicated than having one identity. Like, oh, I'm Arab and Muslim and that's it. I had a question just based off of kind of they know what you spoke about as well, this gap in like, you know, the research. Um, I'm wondering just like how much you guys believe that accounts for kind of like this sort of stigma of mental health in, in the Muslim community and what kind of barriers that creates in terms of understanding some of those like unique issues um, and supporting it with like research and hands-on experience. So is your question kind of based on the lack of research stigma playing into the lack of research? Sort of, but just kind of too, like, I feel like uh, this, this would be more from like the perspective of the Muslim community. Mm -hmm. So I don't think like mental health is something that's just openly discussed. Sure. I feel like of all the kinds of like issues that do occur um, and then just based off of the conversation that we had from from the previous question, we do have like, you know, high yeah. rates of adjustment disorder um, or, you know, like those those other um, like issues that, yeah. that um, you guys you guys pointed out earlier. Is that like something that we can kind of work towards kind of identifying and, and kind of addressing? Yeah, I think you bring up a really good point. And I think stigma kind of spans across multiple domains. And what I mean by that is so obviously stigma exists in across different cultures and just across Americans in general. I think the overall things are being destigmatized, at least in my experience. However, there's still a long way to go. One main thing that encounters to me, so like, for example, people, by the time they come to me, it's usually when things are bad, right? Um, even even when, I, when, I, when I was doing outpatient, like by the time a Muslim person came to me for a psychiatric issue, it was when things had gotten pretty bad. Um, and I think you know, this is not unique to Muslims, but I do see it, I've seen it in my experience that the awareness of mental illness exists, um, still stigmatized. And although that awareness might be less stigmatized, uh, seeking treatment is st still stigmatized pretty significantly, whether that's seeing a therapist or taking medication. Um, and even when it is, um, it is very hush hush and it is almost, uh, minimized, kept secretive, um, and try to keep it as short as possible, even when it's not necessarily indicated. So like the minute things get better, a common thing I have is when can I stop? So I think it's important like to destigmatization is not just awareness of what of a specific mental illness mm -hmm. or mental health problem, but it's also destigmatizing, uh, seeking help or treatment for that mental illness. And I think that second part is still, we have a lot of work to do on that. I mean, I can add a little bit by saying that the stigma extends beyond patients and like, uh, clients that it actually extends into the mental health system itself and that therapists yep. themselves who ha have like symptoms or diagnosis can are often like um, avoid disclosing anything for to avoid getting stigma within their, their own system itself. Great point. Um, so Ali, you mentioned a little earlier that you think the stigma is getting better over time. Mm -hmm. uh, so generally, I've noticed there's like a really big difference in the way people respond to issues related to mental health based on generation. So like if I'm ever talking to someone from my parents' generation in the Muslim community, they'll have an extreme overreaction. They might make uninformed or hurtful comments, but when I've spoken to the Muslim youth about mental health, they those kinds of overreactions happen a lot less. I think even compared to like my generation or people like my age when I was in college or uh, when I was in high school comparing like you know what people were saying in the circles I mean even the fact that I was going into social work at that time 
I could probably count on three fingers, like how many social workers I knew who were Muslim. Yeah. Right. And, and whoever I, anytime I heard about somebody who was a social worker or going to be a social worker or interested in any kind of therapy or anything, I would like latched onto them like crazy. <laughs> and then uh, we're still not seeing a ton of people going into the field. We're still not seeing that, but um, even like comparing you know, people who went to college with me compared to the first group of kids I worked with at Aqsa. Um, there was a lot of hesitance to meet with me. And then compared to now, I mean, the kids, you know, they're not that the kids, you know, eight years ago weren't socially aware. They were, but they were just aware about different things. And it was a different, it was a different world back then. I mean, now with social media and they're constantly scrolling, they're like aware of a lot of things. They're very open. They they want to advocate for all sorts of things in terms of social justice. And so mental health fits right in. For sure. When I was in school, it was like, nobody talks about that. Even now, to be honest, I still have friends that have confided in me about it and Sometimes the way they talk, it seems like their insistence that it's a secret. It seems more about like the stigma than about it being like a privacy issue or something like that. But it's definitely less than, I guess, like my parents' generation, but definitely more than, I think, like the youth. It was very different for us growing up. Kind of interesting to hear you guys tell your experiences because I grew up in an Arab country and that's a completely different context. Because in the U.S., like... Um, I don't want to say there's more exposure or like um, education around it. Like obviously the stigma is pervasive across the world, but I would say that up until I went to college in the U.S., I didn't even think I could go to a therapist or or such a thing even existed. Like you know, you can see like within my generation, this is not my parents. This was me, but just like based on where I was living, what I was exposed to kind of um, shaped my understanding. I actually have a question for Leila. So you mentioned that in the beginning of your job at Aqsa, your students were a lot more hesitant to come talk to you. And then over time, you saw that shift. Yeah. Do you think that's because the stigma has reduced over that period of time? Or do you think it has more to do with... Stranger danger? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I would never attribute it to, to the stigma decreasing. I don't think the stigma decreased. Yeah. Uh <laughs> I don't know. I think it's getting better. It's getting better. Definitely getting better. I feel like a lot of the people that I talk to feel stuck. They're <laughs> hesitant to reach out to Muslim therapists because they feel like the Muslim community is so insular. Everybody knows everybody and they're worried that things can quickly turn into an expose. But on the other hand, they're hesitant to reach out to non-Muslim therapists because they're worried that they'll just reinforce harmful stereotypes oh. so like if a girl wants to complain about her father or her husband she becomes the oppressed muslim girl under the authority of the oppressive muslim man angry arab man yeah i just feel like when i talk to the muslim community specifically a lot of them feel like no matter what they're just gonna end up yeah. in trouble somehow yeah and i i do think i mean i personally when i want to refer my students to someone i have a very hard time there's not a lot of options um there's more than there was before but still not a lot of options um and um so it's definitely um like i said i don't i don't think um i think the my students just like got to know me i became like a, i had a role in the school i think that was really all it was and usually by like the time they're graduating i i kind of give them a time like access resources they exist in colleges for sometimes for free take advantage of them wellness centers exist 
etc. Right. But can I guarantee that they're going to be able to find a therapist that has the same identity as them? Do they even need that? Like, is that even necessary? Is that, so I don't know if it's, it's not necessary, but I do think it helps. Well, it helps with just like that comfort level of sharing. It helps in terms of not having to go through like multiple levels of like explaining to get to that point. Um, and I think, you know, I think if they're not, you know, ha- mm-hmm. does not, do not have a shared identity. They do have to have that cultural humility piece, right. which only only some mm-hmm. social work schools are teaching it in that way. Anyways, like it's it's really it's not how I don't know. I wasn't taught in the cultural humility way. I was taught to be culturally sensitive, all of that. But I think I kind of got it because I was a person of color. But I think if everybody else, you know, I don't think anybody else in my program or very few people, unless they like had their own experiences, didn't necessarily learn it in that way awareness of moving past that like mm-hmm. minimum bare minimum like let's teach diversity as like you know stereo <laughs> reinforcing stereotypes which most most that. programs now are starting to shift away from that but when I was in school which is not that long ago I it was it was basically that reinforcing stereotypes <laughs> so I, it's not it's not necessary for somebody to see somebody who's like them um, I think people of color help I think cultural humility and whoever it is helps. I think um, having access that's like easy. Like I think people need to see it like right there. Like it exists. Hello, come see, you know, even like at my school, like my office is there. I make them all come see me once, you know, at least like at the beginning of the year and at the end of the Mm -hmm. year. I think it needs to be something where we sort of are kind of like sort of shoving it down their throats a little bit so that they know that it's there. And there's, there are some resources um, that we can start to access when we start to access those resources it, then there's a show that there's a need some mosques mosque communities are trying to emphasize the need and they're talking about it a little bit more in their like lecture series and stuff like that with the youth but i still don't see as many counselors or therapists that are available readily available at the mosque um they're not necessary i mean i think that's where that's where it should start and then then those mosques so they have a lot of influence they do they do and so if shuyukh are saying be okay with mental health services we have services take advantage of them here they are and if they don't say read quran it would all go away right spiritual your, like, your depression is going to cure itself if yeah. you read this verse like 24 right. times or something. and then whoever they hire not being like lila said somebody that like you know people feel like they're all of their you know dirty laundry is going to be aired out right we don't want that either um and i don't know if we have necessarily a solution for that except for people starting people need to be able to trust the system right to trust that confidentiality Mm -hmm. is a reality and so then we need therapists who are maintaining that right and so the more that we have more people who've kind of gone through the the system can like show that look this is confidential this is um, we're going to work through these things together. Um, I'm not trying to fix you. I'm not going to try to like, you know, shove the faith down your throat. Um, I want to hear you listen, all of that, all of that, and then bring faith in when appropriate. Leila, I was kind of curious. Uh, one of the points that you brought up was very interesting to me. The fact that, you know, we, it's, it's, it's just a sheer fact alone that we do not have as many like Muslim professionals in these fields. Is it that insularity that Nidas was talking about where it's like, oh, not only is it bad to be on the you know side of being like a patient, but like also being someone who like acknowledges those things, acknowledges that they exist and treats those things. Um, I'm just curious to know if 
if you feel like in general there is some kind of stigma against like going into the field that you guys have chosen I think it exists I think it's starting to get better like I'm seeing you know even just in my students of the past like four or five years I've had more students choosing to go into some kind of helping profession um, and their parents being okay with it or you know for the most part I mean every all parents are concerned about finances right that's like and but if that's where we're at I'm like at least like that's the concern not it's not because it's a a shameful you know Mm -hmm. like uh, you know pursuit or anything like that it's more just like parents know that it doesn't pay well um or it doesn't always pay well um and so I I've definitely seen a little bit of a shift in that sense which is which is a good thing um I think, yeah, I think the finances sometimes just people away. I think the, you know, if parents are pushing a certain cultural norm, like pursue this degree, pursue that degree, stay in the, you know, like health professions. Um, I didn't get much pushback. I, for the most part, I didn't get much pushback from my own parents. Um, but when I, you know, started at Loyola, I was definitely the only, um, I think there was one other person in my program who was Muslim. Um, but most people like respected that I was like pursuing it. Grad school is expensive, um, especially if you're studying art therapy where like there's limited amounts of programs and they're really pricey and you the outcome doesn't really make you that much money. Um, so like it's a big risk actually to, to pursue a degree like that. A degree that's, you know, not really well known or like it's hard to get a job through. Um, I wouldn't say there's stigma around it. There's more like a question mark, like what the hell is that? Like a lot of people don't even know what therapy is. I do remember having to like explain like what am I learning mm-hmm. in school? Like I'd like explaining like what that looked like. Yeah. And just having to be like, well, we have some classes and we do an internship. <laughs> yeah. And then we do our and then we just jump right in. <laughs> and yeah, so being I, as vague as possible. Program representation also, like if you see a program that's all white females you're not gonna feel you know inclined to actually apply there when I went to the art therapy conference it was literally 99.999 middle-aged white woman literally there wasn't even like there was like there were like three men maybe like I could count the number of men and also like the people of color were not even like two percent yeah I know that at UIC and my and I've taught three different cohorts in the last two years um, in the social work program. And there were, and in just the classes that I taught went to uh, four Muslims. So it's more than there was in my like whole like graduating class. So there's, you know, the numbers are going up, but it's still like, you know, four out of those like 75 students. So you can do the math, I don't know. And I don't know how many were like in the rest of the program, but. Wondering uh, what it's like for a psychiatrist. Yeah, this is one of the few points I think uh, my experience has been different than uh, Layla and Dania's. So yes, there is stigma in pursuing psychiatry within the medical field. Psychiatry is still stigmatized. Less so than before. Um, There's some other factors that have made it less stigmatized because of the shortage. There's some other financial reasons, lifestyle reasons, why people would be, it's more desirable than it used to be. Uh, but it still is stigmatized, less so than before. But I think now that there's a little bit more of awareness amongst physicians with burnout themselves, self-care, mental illness amongst physicians, there is less stigma. I mean, in our community, yeah, there is stigma. Personally, with my parents, I didn't really face any pushback, but it also helped that my dad is a psychiatrist, so he kind of encouraged it. Um, and within my extended family, 
because my dad is so well respected amongst them, I didn't get any pushback with that. But I did get a lot of uh, you know things like, oh, you became a doctor to do that, you know. Um, so um, definitely some stigma was the biggest thing that people kind of do. But again, I, I I don't think it was as bad as how things would have been in my dad's generation. Like I can't even imagine him explaining to my grandparents that he's going to be a psychiatrist. <laughs> uh, I feel like a big reason why from a young age, um, despite like, you know, I, growing up with people that went into mental health and I, and I think a lot of people are like me. Um, I was so worried about how emotionally involved I get with people. I feel like, you know, I'm a pretty empathetic person and, if I was in a profession where I'm constantly hearing about like sadness or trauma, I, I, I would collapse. So, um, I was wondering what advice you have for people who are thinking about pursuing a career in the mental health field or who are new practitioners and are concerned about getting too emotionally invested. I know what Dania's going to say. What? See a therapist? <laughs> yeah. Number one, I mean, I was literally, um, saying that in my exit interview in the program, I actually advocated for therapy becoming part of the training and actually becoming um, sort of integrated within the training and also covered by the school. We've been talking about that too. Yeah, yeah, because becoming a therapist, like, like just the training itself brings out a lot of things that need to be addressed. I had that preconceived notion myself when I started the internship. I was like, oh my God, I hope I don't like, you know, get too depressed and but in reality, it was actually, it had a really different, um, uh, like, effect on me. It was actually inspiring. It actually made me uh, witness post-traumatic growth in many ways, just seeing people cope and even grow, not just survive uh, through their, like, treatment or their symptoms or even accepting uh, existential realities in the world. Um, I think there was, like, a lot of grace that you witness, a lot of inspira- inspiration that comes from through working with people who are uh, dealing with mental health issues. It's it's more dynamic mm. than that. It's not just what we think depression or these diagnoses like. I think it's important to humanize them and, and beyond being patients, specifically in hospital settings, like because they feel like numbers. Yeah. No. I mean, I I definitely hear that a lot too. And I think for me, I I. I I think Dania hit it spot on. I think it's kind of like, I also get to see a lot of people get better. And I think one of the misconceptions about mental illness is that it doesn't get better. And I get to see a lot and I get to take part in a lot of people's recovery. So it's really cool to see that. Uh, And I think that kind of takes away from all of, you know, it it helps when you get to hear the sad stories. But I think for me, like self-care is a big one and compartmentalization to some extent. Um, is kind of how I do get through it and knowing like what my triggers are, what, what things are, what things I may struggle with more. But I think this kind of goes back into my training, I think. And I think this is what something Layla and Danya were advocating for in their training. I come from a very strong program where they really emphasize self-care, mentorship, seeking out your own uh, mental health support. And I think that, you know, and knowing when you're burned out, and I think that kind of has helped me in my early career so far, um, and I think that, and I'm, I'm hoping it continues that way, but I think that self-care and identification of when to seek help when you're burnt out is really important in any field, but especially in the mental health field to avoid exactly what you were talking about. Chris. And I think I like, I, I similar to what they both were saying, I, I just feel this like overwhelming sense of like, like privilege of being able to like, what um, Danny said, like witnessing and like hearing and listening, I feel like really privileged to like hear 
you know, all these things that, that people are willing to share with me. Um, and kind of like, we sort of go on this like journey together of like this like journey of healing, I guess, even in cases of grief, like I get to hear about the people that they're like grieving for grieving about, like, even if they had passed on, like, I get to know these people through these people who love and care about them so much. Um, and that's really what pushes me through, like, you know, the, the sadder stuff. I think being able to see that growth over time, and it's really a privilege to be part of that. That um, Just to see that, like, know, progress. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So I was kind of interested because you guys brought up this great topic of, like, advocacy in your field um, in terms of, like, ensuring that there are certain, like, processes or, like, mediums for, for self-care for you, the healers. Um, I'm interested uh, to know if there's any other forms of like advocacy, any other types of like progress that you would like to see in your respective fields. Um, if that's something that you're kind of starting to see now, um, something that you're hoping to kind of like maybe even take part in. I feel like there needs to be a better understanding of what self-care is. It's not an add-on thing. That would be a band-aid solution. I feel it's like more integrating uh, integrating that in the, in the lifestyle, the way that you live, like, like being more mindful, being uh, able to ground yourself at different points in your day, um, checking in with yourself, checking in with your body reactions. Like you can't prevent yourself right. from reacting a certain way based on your lived experience. You know, we're all reacting to each other different ways. We're feeling different things. Um, you can't just like shut yourself down completely and and actually build a relationship. Like, right, the two go hand in hand, I would imagine. Yeah. So, I mean, I feel like that that really does like sum it up with with like, the advocacy, but in terms also too of just like the general population, um, do you feel like beyond any kind of like stigmas that already do exist in society, we need to kind of like, as a general population, so not just people like who are practicing in the field, um, is there something that we need to be doing? I think kind of just like this idea of like, call it self-regulation. And Danya sort of talked about like the grounding, kind of checking in with yourself. I think that's something that everybody can do. Um, and it goes along with the mindfulness, right? But at the same time, it's just also like being aware of your body. And this is something that like I, with my elementary kids, you know, they, they think about something that makes them really happy, thinking about how that feels in their body. And we like, you know, you start there and then you continue and you maybe talk about some different feelings and helping them think, well, if you're starting to feel worried about something, what do you feel? And that's something, again, like we can do that with kids, but we also can do that as adults. I personally always disclose that I go to therapy like all the time, even though I don't need to. But I just feel like that helps people reach out to me and tell me, how's your therapy going? Can you tell me how to get go to therapy? Like, you know, just like people approach me just because I show them that it's okay to actually um, talk about these things and deal with them. So I, this is just like one practical application. I think, I think you guys kind of brought up a great point. I think it's kind of almost normalizing the talk of emotions in our everyday language. Because one of the problems I encounter um, and most of the kids that I see, you know, they do have some kind of underlying conflict. If they're coming to the level of care that they see me. Um, and it's pretty common where emotions and stuff is just not something that people talk about. It's because they don't know. I mean, they don't know how to identify their emotions. And I think it kind of goes back to what Layla said. It's almost as if, a, you know, and I think some schools are, are doing a better job of kind of uh, teaching kids that more about their emotions. Um, you know, I, I almost wish like every kid had like an inside yeah. the movie inside out you know, the court, a course like oh, good. Oh, cool. good. yeah so and i think you know just so just so and it's it's okay to talk about your emotions and that you know it's 
it's not something that you just kind of keep to yourself. And I think that's one of the first steps as a society that we need to take to uh, prioritize our mental health. Uh, I mean, that's one way to advocate in addition to the thing that needs to be continued to advocate is more resources in general, because another point that um, you guys brought up was accessibility is difficult. You know, things need to be right there for people, but there's just not enough providers. There's just not enough resources. And I think that kind of goes hand in hand. And I think that falls into not just Muslims, but in general. Insurance uh, coverage yeah, too, to like say. that's yeah. affordability of yeah. services. Yeah. Billing, like right. I think the fact that, you know, you can't bill unless like there's so many limitations. Yeah, and I think it kind of, there's what I also encounter is, is that, you know, especially for you guys who live in Illinois, you know, when I used to, it, it uh, there's like this huge gap, right? So the people who are, who have resources, they have some access and there's people who have not, are underprivileged, have some access, but limited, there's long wait times. And then there's the people in the middle who actually kind of get left behind big time. There's just not enough people. And I think the issue is, it's not just with psychiatrists, but therapists in general. Um, and, you know, kind of, we had talked about this earlier, but I personally don't know many Muslim therapists. I know a lot of Muslim psychiatrists. So to hear you guys, that there are more people going in the field is really reassuring to me. Uh, and I'm hoping that like 10, 15 years down the line, that there's just a lot more um, you know, and that the accessibility to this will be a lot better. I do feel like it's not even just, okay, forget talking about like diagnoses, like depression or anxiety or any mental illness. I feel like if you just talk about any emotion other than happiness, people don't react very well to that. Yeah. You know, at my residency interviews, you know, a very common question is what's a weakness or what's an area of improvement? At one of my interviews, I mentioned that I I struggle with getting a little emotionally invested, a little too emotionally invested, and um, obviously the follow-up question is, what are you doing uh, to work on that? So I responded by saying, you know, sometimes it depends on the patient and the situation, but if it's something particularly difficult, I may take a few minutes after the encounter to go sit silently in the chapel or the meditation room, whatever the hospital has. And sometimes I cry a little and sometimes I pray, but I just need those few minutes to kind of just let it out. So, okay, I saw that the person who was interviewing me, okay, I was not supposed to do this, but um, I accidentally saw her notes and I promised it was an accident and they said um, emotional and cries a lot. So I was like, okay, not ranking this program. I think that's a very healthy way to deal with it. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. You know. I had no idea the degree to which people are uncomfortable um, acknowledging other emotions. There's no such thing as bad emotions. Like, both positive and negative emotions are important. We can't, like, just, you know, treat anger or sadness or, or all these, like, perceived negative emotions as bad because that adds shame and guilt. I came into school thinking that negative emotions are bad. But it took me time to actually realize that our perception of emotions itself is flawed. It's okay to emote. You can have yeah. multiple feelings at once. <laughs> like, yeah, that's completely yeah. normal, right? That goes back to Ali's inside out comment. And I think a better understanding of emotions actually is like the first step to prevent invalidation of somebody's emotions, right? Because that's such a common thing that you see that... Um, somebody's trying to be helpful, well-intentioned, and in the meantime, they completely mm-hmm. invalidate the person that's struggling, right? So, I mean, even in that situation, Milas, I would think you felt invalidated, even though it was a completely normal, appropriate reaction. And that, so that's, yeah, that's a, I think that's a really good example. Yeah, I walked away from my interview, and I was like, yeah. am I? 
Am I problematic? <laughs> Do you think we are this way because um, we have like our own underlying issues uh, that we're not willing to address? So we just try to mask it or, you know, we get so uncomfortable whenever anything quote unquote negative uh, comes up. I don't know. I always try to think about um, things in terms of like, what's the etiology of this problem? Um, I would tell you that vulnerability is sometimes uh, perceived as a threat. So like when somebody is vulnerable and they talk about their emotions, uh, it's actually a, a very powerful thing to be able to do. It's actually a strength, even though it's perceived as weakness. Usually people who react negatively to that are, are usually people who are struggling to achieve that or to do that. Or, or they're taught to think that, you know, being vulnerable and talking about your emotions makes you weak. We also can't expect everybody to share their emotions because we, we, we need to be, be like trauma informed and understand where people are coming from and like also realize that it could be caused because their defenses, their defense mechanisms are working like they, they can't go there for whatever reason yeah. that they've been through or like, you know, um, their background, their lived experience, their traumas, yeah. like it shouldn't be forced on people. Like I'm trying to say, like, if I'm a therapist, I'm, I'm not going to like, you know, want them to disclose everything and share everything like at, at my pace or like to expect that even from any person. You meet people where they're at. That's like the first yeah. social work tenant, therapist tenant. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, I mean, privacy is still a thing, right? Yeah. You don't have to like match the other person. If one person is being vulnerable, you don't have to feel pressured to also be vulnerable or like, you know, share your emotions if you don't feel comfortable sharing. So, and I know that happens a lot. Like the miscommunications between like my students sometimes is like that, like, you know, one person's willing to share, the other person doesn't want to share yet or isn't comfortable sharing and then poof, mis misunderstanding. And so, you know, that obviously continues if people are kind of not understanding of that. Yeah, I think too, this is kind of maybe tangential, but um, in uh, Lilas knows I did some improv a little while back and in improv, there's this concept of um, yes and. So anytime somebody, you know, gives you something like, let's say they do you know, some kind of scene and, and you want to go a completely different route. Um, you're sort of like not supposed to say yes, but, <laughs> you know, like you're supposed to say yes and. So you like take what somebody's giving you and like, using that and then like you're building off of each other. So it's really that like building a relationship kind of concept um, and it exists in improv, um, but it also applies in therapy. It applies in just like communicating with people too. Like, you know, you're talking to a, a coworker or something and they'll say, you know, um, you'll have like a great idea or you're talking about your emotions. You're talking about how something made you feel and then they go, yes, but, <laughs> um, and that makes kind of like, almost just that word sort of like inva almost invalidates everything that you just said. I like that. That's a really cool like parallel. I've never, I've never even like realized that, but that's like, yeah. I mean, part of the reason I went into, I did some improv was to like hone some therapeutic skills, but um, it's also fun. So <laughs> one day I want to do some research on, and there has been some research on like the parallels between like social work and improv and it's related to group work. Yeah. That is so cool. Danya, question for you. Do you find, so obviously, so you're pretty open that you're like, I see a therapist and I tell people and that's, that's awesome. Like in your experience, do you feel like that's the minority of providers? Um, okay. So, so I've actually worked 
the majority of the people I work with at UFC are not art therapists. They're actually all doctorates in psychology and psychiatrists. Okay. I don't work with them actively right now in like their treatment team or like their one-on-one mm-hmm. uh, sessions, but I've seen the way they carry themselves and the, like just understanding that the way they were trained is completely different than the way I'm trained. We might have similar knowledge, like base in terms of theories and like, you know, applications, but um, I think the way psychologists are taught and like even in medical school psychiatry is taught is, is, is different than like the way art therapists are taught. I'm not saying okay. better, but I'm saying there's like a different approach. It's like less clinical, at least from my, my point of view. I mean, for me, and it's more like relational, I would say. Um, and I understand like, you know, being in a medical field requires you to create yeah. those constraints and those barriers and the yeah. separating the, the, the therapist from the patient and like, you know, yeah. um, I feel like we have more leniency or flexibility with that in terms yeah. of uh, the way we build the relationship and the way the treatment goes. It's like more organic and less structured, less like, you know. Because uh, like, I'll be honest, like, I mean, I trained with a lot of people who had their own struggles, right? And yeah. it was something you shared with your friends and, you know, uh, some people were really completely open books and they were really strong and they were really able to share that. And, you know, some people, um, didn't and you know i always wonder you know how what would i be and i think i would probably be one of the people who would not be as open about it and i think and i think that's that's where and that's i think my own some of my own social anxieties about how other people might think and i think it kind of goes back to the stigma that um society in general has and well, I was curious to see what your experience was. Well, I wanted to clarify that fact that I do tell people that I, I go to therapy is because, first of all, I need to practice what I preach. If yeah. I'm never in the client position, then I'm never going to understand what it really is like. And if I'm never vulnerable and like, you know, really vulnerable the way that a patient is vulnerable with me, then I feel like that's kind of missing the point And, you know, I wouldn't be serving them as well a very humbling experience and also like it kind of uh removes some of the power differential like i said yeah no that's great yeah basically that's what my whole thesis is about is about me going through my own healing journey while also working with people who are healing with the same almost the same issues how do you separate your own healing from from your patient's healing and does that is that even possible because you're influencing each other so much healing is a two-way street it's not just like a one-way when you're working with clients a lot of times you're actually processing your own stuff and you're healing yourself I would say even like among like my my friends who are also in the field like I do think again the last like few years like more people that I know have been seeing therapists or knowing that they can or like you know being able Mm -hmm. to consider it than like maybe they have they would have in the past as long as I I think really some of it is it comes down to like and if social workers aren't paid that much and then they can't afford their own therapy it's just like that's like something that (laughs) definitely should cover that because you know they give you free sessions like 16 free sessions for like three years that's not enough no it's not you gotta cover it all like give us like the copay is kind of expensive for people so and then once you graduate and if you get a job that pays okay that has insurance like that like also determines like you know what kind of therapy can you get can you get a therapy that's covered by insurance um does your insurance like actually cover it are you gonna have to pay 200 dollars a session like what what's gonna happen here (laughs) and even getting a referral to see a psychologist like and people concerned about leaving a paper trail which is basically if you get diagnosed anywhere to, to be able to pay for your you know sessions or whatever they need to bill it so that you can pay for it through insurance 
And that for some people is a concern because there will be like a paper trail, like a diagnosis that's written somewhere in a record. Or if they're, by the they don't insurance want their, that's provided by their by parents, the or, <laughs> or, or parents, by their, yeah. you know, in this community, like yeah. if. So building off of that, I actually had a question for Ali. Do you get a lot of uh, like uh, readmissions or rehospitalizations? Oh yeah, big time. Revolving door. Yeah, um, <laughs> and I think yeah, and like I kind of step back a little bit. So the population I serve, I mean, in inpatient psychiatry in this age group, you know, predominantly this is before more like mania psychosis and all that stuff is set in so you're really dealing with mostly kids who have suicide attempts suicidal thoughts self-harming behavior or young kids who've got a lot of aggressive behavior a spare amount of these kids have ongoing family conflict and trauma and i think rehospitalizations occur quite frequently because one is it takes a while to address all the factors that may have contributed to the hospitalization that we are, are limited in what we can do in our short span. Um, and plus I think lack of resources that people have appropriate to step down, you know? Um, so like if somebody, let's say for example, somebody's trauma is a major factor in their depression and suicidal thinking. Um, and, you know, I see them for a week in the hospital they're not great, but they're safe to go home. But there's a six-month wait list for them to get trauma therapy. That's a high likelihood that that patient is coming right back to me. So I, rehospitalization, uh, Tanya said it right, it's a revolving door. I mean, I think that's not specific to psychiatry. I think that's across a lot of uh, different medical fields. But yeah, it is pretty common. Yeah, and I think there's also, I wanted to add that, you know, therapy is becoming short term, the the closer, like, you know, back in the day, yeah. like therapy used to actually be long term, and like, they would spend years to like resolve things and work on them. But now it's become short term yeah. in terms of like getting coverage and stuff. There's, short, there's a big shortage of self psychiatrists, especially child psychiatrists, right? So um, a common thing is like, even if somebody gets admitted to our floor, there's no guarantee that, I, that our social worker or anybody can get them appointment with anybody, you know, to adjust their medicines or see a therapist. Uh, within a short amount of time. So oftentimes, you know, in an acute crisis, people are, end up coming to the emergency room. I think that's, uh, if you ask an emergency room physician, they'll tell you how bad the mental health crisis is. Um, and I think there's a shortage of providers across multiple disciplines. I think um, myself, Danya, and Leila will all tell you they're in our respective disciplines, there's a pretty big shortage, uh, not just amongst Muslim providers, but just in general. There's data to support that faith can be a healing factor. But um, that being said, there is this advocacy on the complete end of the spectrum where you have these quote-unquote scholars who say, if you read this ayah 24 times, then your depression will go away and you will be happy all the time and everything's a double rainbow. Or even, um, they might even say something like, a mental illness indicates a deficiency in faith or God's displeasure. And that stuff is obviously wrong and also, like, probably haram. Um, but, um... Uh, when Amina and I were discussing this episode, I mean, uh, we do kind of want you guys to educate us and our listeners about how uh, faith plays into healing and how it plays into your work. I can talk about how it plays into my work. I mean, I, I work at an Islamic school, so it plays into it pretty regularly, almost daily. I'll give you an example by right now, right? Like with the current state, you know, quarantine, being able to like have them really reflect on what's going on and how they're able to take advantage of the current, you know, situation. You know, they're like able to connect their own experiences, experiences of others to like an ayah or like a hadith or something in the faith. Um, and that, that I found very like 
powerful and like talking about with every hardship comes ease, but connecting, always connecting it back to it's okay if, you know, you're feeling sad or you're struggling with the hardship. So it's like almost you take the things that are often said in the communities that are kind of said to like make people feel better. Um, but then you make sure that it's like surrounded with like this like therapeutic lens of like reinforcing existing like beliefs. Yeah. That's kind of comforting to know. Yeah. And, and I think like that is something that, you know, the, I think kids, it feels comfortable for them that they like have, they can bring it up right on their own if they want to. Um, I may or may not mention it if I know that the like student is like more like inclined in that way. Right. Um, or if I know that it might be, you know, again, like potentially like helpful um, in that context. But then, of course, then there's always that, you know, the, the, the potential harm of, you know, other people using it as like something called spiritual bypassing maybe it could be as simple as like them thinking that whatever hardship they're going through is because like a test or a punishment from god and sort of like reassuring that like that's not even really in our faith um yeah not because of lack of faith or or not praying or anything like yeah. that so kind of having to correct maybe something they've heard and and it you know spiritual bypassing it's I negatively know. it's gonna negatively impact the spiritual and the psychological psychological development i i mean i'm glad you mentioned that but i also wanted to acknowledge the fact that faith is a major part of being muslim and uh, like having a muslim identity like it's just almost like if you're practicing or like your if your faith is like an essential point in your life it's going to come up in therapy. One example in oncology is I've had a wife of a patient. Most of our conversations revolved around faith. And the way that I could connect uh, her own healing through Quran is that I, I would create an art directive that is based on her, her spiritual practices. Like we would like, let's say she likes embroidering. And so I would like introduce like maybe embroidering her favorite verse that's going to help her go through like her husband's treatment. So if faith comes up, you create something that has uh, like its spirituality integrated, but if it doesn't come up, I'm not going to impose my Muslim faith and beliefs with any, like just every single patient. And, and know that within, you know, if you're if, like, yeah. I, for me, I'm working with Muslims. I have to know there's a range, you know, <laughs> I'm going to have mm -hmm. kids who, you know, might not, you know, want any of that brought up because maybe they're feeling like, well, okay, I, I don't want you to know this, but I don't pray. Or they don't want to share that because they're not looking for, they might not be looking for like advice about it. Right? Yeah. They might just be, you know, wanting to share that, right? So kind of really being able to, yeah, I think that customizing piece that you talked about is is so true to like therapy in general, right? Again, going back to that, like, you're not going to ever meet anybody who's the same as anybody else that you've met. <laughs> it's just not. Mm -hmm. There might be some similarities. There might be some similar things that they have experienced, what you've experienced, all of it, right? But it's never going to be the same exact. Mm -hmm. So you're going to have to um, find something that's tailored to that person bring up a great point i think because like i know for me faith is one of those things where it's brought up if the patient themselves brings it up right and whether it's a muslim or a non-muslim patient or if, if it's maybe not important to the patient but it's important to a family member um and you know we try to spin it um and use it uh, to our advantage as best as we can and you know i think there's there's like example i've had muslim patients where faith doesn't come up you know outside of saying salam it doesn't really come up and in others um it's one of the major parts of our discussion. Um, and, you know, and oftentimes when it can potentially be an obstacle almost or a hindrance in treatment, that's where it comes down to a little bit more of a complex uh, treatment plan where, you know, you have collaboration with a trusted religious uh, scholar that or somebody that, you know, so oftentimes, you know, for me, I never, you know, I'm always, for, if faith is a part of or some kind of 
extra practices that are being done by somebody else, I never discourage it unless, you know, as long as they're following the other treatment plan as well. But I think kind of what you brought up, and I think it, it's it's allowed my faith and my background as a practicing Muslim allows me to better understand where people of other faiths are coming from too, and kind of tailor a treatment plan for them as well. But I think like you guys said, it's, you know, I bring, you bring it up when it's relevant, when it's brought up by a patient or a family member. My brother wanted me to ask about the nocebo effect because he's a huge believer of the nocebo effect. So um, he uh, thinks that if you diagnose um, the, a mental illness, it's more likely to get worse. So he wanted to know what your guys' thoughts on the nocebo effect is. And honestly, I feel like this is a good question because I, I think a lot of people, uh, a lot of people think along the same lines as, as that. So I mean I think I think I think there's some point to that, but I think there's also some things that you can directly contradict and say not true. For example, that what used to be what people thought about suicide, that if you talked about suicide, it's gonna make somebody commit suicide, which we know is not true. Um, I think also the counteract the nocebo effect that I typically have is, is I also say, well, I get back into the whole, you know, as a as a, with a medical background, science is the thing I use, you know. Uh, so I tell, yeah, feeling learned helplessness or feelings of hopelessness um, in somebody who's depressed. I think understanding that you have this clinical syndrome, your feelings of hopelessness make it seem like they're never going to get better. But scientifically, we know that's not the course of your medical illness. And you can go look at all the papers. And the, so I think there are ways to challenge that. Uh, but there's the thing. Um, and it is something that you often struggle with, uh, and it is it can be an obstacle in some people's recovery. But I don't think you know. not. I think because essentially he's saying he's saying labeling the problem yeah. is going to make the problem worse. But I also, you know, I kind of would uh, would argue that well, if we don't label or identify the problem appropriately, how are you going to help improve it? Well, unfortunately, our time is up. Um, I learned so much from this conversation. It was really great. It was really rewarding. Um, thank you. Thank you guys so much for coming. This was a very like heavy subject. So thank you all for like getting on here and speaking. I've learned so much as somebody who is not very familiar with this field at all. Um, so I think it's really cool that you guys could like, you know, take the time out and um, kind of walk through it with us. So actually the last question we like to ask our guests towards the end of every episode is, what do you want our listeners to take away from today's conversation? Don't be afraid to ask for help. Like, it's really important to realize that that's the first step. Just having a conversation or reaching out to somebody uh, who has information or just like even searching online for yourself, like there's no shame in it. Yes, I was kind of thinking the same as Danya. I mean, don't be afraid to um, seek therapy. If you just want to know, like have more information, um, like Danya said, do, do your research on it, but also like try to find somebody to talk to about it. You can even call like a therapist just to like touch base. You don't, it doesn't mean you're committing to them and you can okay. shop, you can shop yeah. around if you don't like a therapist, you know, your first therapist, you can try another one. I know that can be kind of exhausting and stuff, but I, I do think there, there is a therapist out there for, for most people. Um, and for my college students, I would say, Take advantage of any kind of free resource that you have, even if it's six sessions. Often universities, undergraduate, you know, have that. So I want everybody who's listening here, who's in college or going to college, to know that you have six free sessions in some schools and sometimes more, depending on where you are. So make sure you take advantage of that. Don't feel like any issue is too like small to like see a therapist for, even if you don't have any. Like it, it's even just a good way for like that self-reflection. Growth, you know, development. growth development, all of that. I think it's important really not to, to use faith as a way to like 
dissuade people from going into therapy. If somebody is saying they're they want to see a therapist or they're interested in seeing a therapist, please do not use faith to say, well, maybe you should try to pray more. Maybe if you made more da or and understand that there are people who are going to advocate for you to access any kind of help or support that you need. Like there are people in the community who are trying to push for it. There are elders in the community who are pushing for mental health resources and services and have been for a long time. If you're having a hard time finding them, reach out to us, reach out to somebody. I mean, we can try to link people wherever wherever we can. I think, I think it's not surprising that all three of us would have something to do with uh, seeking help. I think my biggest take is keep an open mind. Uh, you know, I think there's a lot of misconceptions about what it's like uh, to seek help, whether it's from a, a therapist, uh, a psychiatrist, you know, just keep an open mind. Um, and I think, you know, it's, it's kind of like Layla said, what's the worst that could happen? You, you go in you and walk out, you're never going to see okay. him again. Yeah. Yeah. So I think keep an open mind and try your best not to have misconceptions or certain expectations, uh, you know, as to what that provider is going to do, whether it's both positive or negative. Negative is, and it's not going to do anything. It's not going to help. It's pointless. Or as in positive, this person's going to fix all my problems. Um, and I think kind of walking in with an open mind is one of the best things you could possibly do when it comes to seeking mental health care. And I think that's kind of what I would want people to take away from this. Um, you know, do your best to keep an open mind. And support each other. If, if you know somebody is like thinking about seeing somebody, it could be you who says, yeah, why not? What's the harm? You know, what, what are you going to lose no. if you try it, right? I mean, mm-hmm. again, there might be other like access issues, money, other things, yeah. but we then then we try to find other ways, right? We try to find yeah. the resources that are more affordable, maybe try to find some someone who does sliding scale. There are yeah. options out there, even if there's still limitations, there are options and I want people to know that they exist. And if you're having trouble finding those options, I, I'm, I'm more than willing to help. I know that these guys would be too. And these days with telehealth, um, is becoming bigger than it used to be. I think I think telehealth is going to continue to like become a thing, um, which might make people more comfortable. I mean, if you're having a hard time finding a Muslim therapist where you live, telehealth might be for you. And so then, you know, I, I'm I foresee that that's going to continue to be, um, you know, become more popular. Um, it has its issues, but I think it might work for some people. If, if identity is a thing for you, know that there are therapists who are Muslim or Arab or other have the same identity who are currently offering telehealth. So the last thing we'll do today and the last thing we do at every episode is end with Surah Asr. So, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Wal-Asr inna l-insana lafi khusr illa al-lazina amanu wa aminu al-salihati wa tawasaw bil-haqqi wa tawasaw bil-sabr. Sadaqallahu al-Azim. Salam, listeners. You just listened to another enlightening conversation at Cafe Tanwir. We hope you gained some perspective and would love to hear your thoughts on today's discussion. Continue the conversation with us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Our handles are Cafe Tanwir everywhere. If you want to increase this community discussion, tell your friends and family about Cafe Tanwir. Our podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. You can also help us out by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. Let's grab coffee again soon. Oh,